Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Squatch Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, so let's uh, start things out with what we've been doing. I will, uh, I don't know, I haven't been doing many things this week. I uh, I do this thing, I like to say I do it every year, but I think I do it like every two years or so. My email box gets so full. Like My morning is like for uh, like an hour, it's just going through my email box, deleting thing, like emails and getting through like, you know, all the junk. And I'm sure a lot of you guys also experience that and every year or so i like to do this thing where i, I call it unsubscribe week and w- it's where i go through every day and i vig- vigilantly go to every email and if it's not like a complete spam thing uh i will like if it's like part of a newsletter or something like that that i don't want on the very bottom of the email it'll have like an unsubscribe link and i i will do that for all those and usually after that week my for for like months and months, my email box is so much more 
tolerable. So uh, I highly recommend uh, this for everybody. Uh, but I've been doing that this week. Um, and it's also, uh, it makes you feel good to like know that you're throwing all these these things that you don't want in your email box away. Uh, but I, uh, I also went to Disneyland this past week. And uh, when I first went to Galaxy's Edge... Uh, we the first day it opened actually. I built myself a lightsaber. We recorded that video, released it online. That video now has, uh, I think, almost a million views, like seven hundred fifty thousand views or something insane. It's uh, one of the most watched Galaxy's Edge videos online, and uh, everybody watching it uh, because I do this ch- channel, Ordinary Adventures, uh, with Kitra, my girlfriend. Uh, they're like, why didn't Kitra build a lightsaber? And the tr- truth of the matter was that. She had no interest. She thought it was kind of like a guy's thing, and she wanted to build a droid and whatever. Um, so she she just had no interest in building a lightsaber. But then she videotaped me doing it, and it's such an emotional experience uh, that, uh, you know, people have been asking on our channel, like, will Kitra build a lightsaber? And uh, she actually decided that it was time to do so. So we went to Galaxy's Edge and she built herself a lightsaber. That video is not online yet, but I will say that she cried multiple times during it. So, um, so look out for that. And um, uh, also, uh, I've been, g- been getting recognized a whole lot for this channel, Ordinary Adventures, which is a lot different than getting recognized for Slash Film. Slash film usually happens at conventions or movie theaters. This happens, you know, theme parks, but also like everyday life. I was, I was at a junket on Saturday, and I for the Mandalorian, which I'll talk about later in this podcast. And I got in my Uber car, and the guy, the Uber driver, like looked in the mirror and looked back at me, and he was like, "Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god." And I'm like, "What?" And he was like, "You're Peter from Ordinary Adventures." <laughs> He, like, freaked out, um, watches the channel. Uh, on Sunday, Kitra and I were shopping in Target, and a guy overheard us talking in another aisle. He worked there, and he came over. Uh, him and his daughter watched the channel, like, you know, every video all the time, and he had us record a video on uh, his phone to send to his daughter, and his daughter, like, replied back on Twitter. It was, like, so sweet. Uh, it's I don't know. It's just... I, I'm not saying that uh, you do the work for these kind of things because this is obviously not why we started this channel and doing this channel, but it's just so cool to have all these interactions and this kind of uh, to see people are loving it and uh, are developing a connection with us. Uh, and it, I'm just uh, so humbled by it because it's a lot, it's also a lot different than the Slash Home audience, which tends to be a lot of like late 20s, early 30s uh, white males. Uh, this is like a lot of like little kids taking photos with us. And it's just, uh, so strange, weird, cool. Uh, I, I just, uh, I don't know. I've been, uh, just so humbled by it, but, um, yeah. So anyways, I haven't been doing much this week, but I just thought I'd mention that on this podcast. Uh, Jacob, you have had a hell of a week. You, you were covering like a big event in Colorado. Uh, what, what did you do? How, how can we sum this up? Yeah, I don't even know where to begin with this. Uh, WB, Warner Brothers, flew out a whole bunch of people, a number of film press, but also a number of social media influencers, uh, strangely enough, to Estes Park, Colorado, uh, for a four-day-long Doctor's Sleep event, which is, you know, the new Mike Flanagan-directed film, the sequel to The Shining, based on Stephen King's novel. And 
I will not be reviewing Doctor Sleep. Uh, Chris will be it for us I, because I was pretty much pampered for four days on this trip. But I did get a chance to uh, interview talent involved and essentially have a big Colorado adventure. Uh, so, Peter, should I start with the haunted room? Wait, the haunted? Oh, you got to stay in a haunted room? Uh, yes. Um, so... The first night I was there, there was a uh, mishap with the booking of my regular rooms. They said, do you want to stay in one of the haunted rooms? And this is the Stanley Hotel. It's located at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. Do, do you the... actually think this was a mishap, or do you think this was planned? I'm not sure. I really don't know. Um, but, you know, the Stanley Hotel is, you know, literally an old mansion that was turned into a hotel. And the 70s is where Stephen King stayed uh, when, he, when he thought up The Shining. So this is where The Shining was born. You walk all over this... Um, you walk all over this town. There's, there's shining stuff everywhere. The gift shops all have shining stuff mixed. All the usual Colorado knickknacks. So it's incredibly unusual. And the Stanley Hotel uh, is a famously haunted place. Uh, there are it's all kinds of ghost stories associated with it. The fourth floor has tons of famously haunted rooms. And I was put in the room 428, which is called the Cowboy Room, because it is where um, a bunch of uh, people with call oh, cholera, um, goodness, um, tuberculosis were put in the, on their last days, and a local rancher would look after them and according to legend uh you can still hear the voices and see the faces of the people who are dying in this room and you wake up at night and see the cowboy sitting by your bed watching over you as, he, as if you were one of his patients and um i did not see this i did not see any cowboys i did not see any any faces however i did hear the ghost tour stop by my room several times and heard the entire story through the door and i really really <laughs> And I wear cowboy boots, and I regret not opening the door and putting my foot out. I regret it oh, so much. Oh, you should have done that. <laughs> Wait, w- um, w- were you hoping to hear anything? Were you hoping to experience anything? Oh, so much so. I, I, I've i written about this in the past, uh, so you can find it on my Twitter page. I, I re-upped it. But I wrote about my, my paranormal experience in the past. I have encountered something that I'm pretty sure was a ghost. So even though I'm a skeptic by nature, I believe there are ghosts out there in some capacity. So I was hoping for another experience. And at first I was disappointed because I woke up the next morning and I woke up repeatedly throughout the night, but I did not see any ghosts. And we went on a ghost tour the next day. This is after I moved out of my room to, to a non-haunted room. And I was talking to my uh, ghost tour guide and she was very, very history based. She did not bullshit us. She kind of threw shade at the tour guide who camped it up and like wore costumes and like put on a performance. She was very much history first, only talk about ghost stories if she could like, if she talked to a person who experienced it. So I talk, so I told her I was in room 428 the previous night. And she said, did I see anything? I said, no. She said, did you hear anything? I said, yeah, I heard people above me walking around and moving things around. It was really annoying. She goes, there's nothing above you. There's only the off-limits roof, which is like at a very heavy slant so people can't walk on it. You were hear, you were hearing the footsteps in a, in a space where, where where people cannot exist. Whoa! Oh my God! So you yeah. did experience supernatural. So I, I did experience event. something. I didn't see anything, but I did. Also, she said that me waking up repeatedly throughout the night is common. She said people on the fourth floor often request to move because they have extreme nightmares and can't sleep, uh, which I also had in my night there. <laughs> Oh so, my gosh! So you did. <laughs> yeah, like I said you can easily be chalked up to you know. A old historical building. It's literally a historical landmark protected um, by the government. So, it, so it, like, it is literally a piece of history at this point, this old hotel. So it's very easy to say, oh, it was the wind. It was the old building shifting. It's the old building on a mountain. Of course, it's going to shift. But I'm choosing to believe there were ghosts walking above me in the ceiling. Uh, so, yeah, um, haunted room. Oh, interestingly, I was kicked out of the wait, room. Wait, wait, wait. So when you were on this ghost tour, did you experience yeah. anything on that? Because, like, I had a friend... 
I, I recently went to the Queen Mary, and yeah. my friend said he took a, a tour of the Queen Mary. Like, they have a ghost tour. And while he was on this ghost tour, he really wanted to experience something. So, like, he started screaming, like, if you're here, do something. You know, make a noise. Do and, like, everybody else on the tour was like, shut up, dude. Like, <laughs> like did, did you experience anything? Uh, the ghost tour was, was was mostly quiet. We went all over the property. We went to the tunnels underneath the Stanley, which which uh, are full of quartz, which is why paranormal experts believe it's haunted because the quartz traps spiritual energy. If you believe that thing, uh, we also went to the old um, uh, ballroom uh, or, sorry, a, or concert venue. I don't remember the exact name for it. It's on property. And we went to the basement, and there's a door there. It's, it's always propped on with a brick because if it's not bricked up. Um, it will sometimes just sit there open without being touched. Sometimes they'll slowly close. Sometimes they'll slam suddenly. And we were sitting there, and at first she moved the brick, and the door very slowly started closing, like very, very slowly. <laughs> I thought, and I, my, my first thought was, it's an old building on a mountain. It's shifting. Of course, the door is going to close. But then she opened it again, and then let go of it again, and stayed still, not moving at all for, like, for a good two minutes until it suddenly slammed shut. I'm in the middle of her presentation, so I'm not saying that that there it are must, ghosts. It must have been a gust of wind, right? It must have been. <laughs> but my whole thing is like, um, believe what you want to believe. Uh, like I said, I'm a believer in ghosts, for better or for worse. Uh, but I try to approach it skeptically. I try not to believe anything that could be fake. That door—it was, was a weird door, Peter. It was a weird freaking door. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 see. I mean, like every every building on that property has a ghost story. There are ghosts everywhere, and you know. Uh, I would talk. I was just talking to a desk clerk while I was checking in. And she said that she does not go on the fourth floor. She straight up does not go up there. She's had enough bad experiences. So the people there um, tend to vary from just an old building to nope, evil place or haunted place. Uh, most of the ghosts are apparently quite friendly and don't mean you harm. Uh, but some people just don't take the chances. Jacob, a lot of times on these um, set visits and, and press trips, it's very controlled, and you're very like uh, you basically like fly in, do a thing at one location, and fly out. Did you get a chance to like explore the rest of Colorado at all while you were there? I got the chance to explore Estes Park quite a bit. They actually uh, had there's no there's no ride shares in Estes Park. It's too small of a town. Nobody's driving Lyft or Uber, so uh, they had like shuttles going back and forth to, to the town, which is a very small town. Uh, it's a tourism town. It's like Amity. They uh, make all their money in the summer when five million people visit the national park nearby, and then they, and then they gets quiet for a while. And since it's uh, winter and it's cold down there, a lot of the shops were closed. Um, some shops were like having clearance sales because they're trying to get rid of all their their gear before they close up for, for the rest of the season. But enough stuff was open that I was able to you know do a lot of shopping. I did a five mile hike around the local lake, which was amazing, and it was the coldest I've ever been in my entire life because it was um, 30 miles per hour wind, so it felt like 14 degrees. I had icicles in my beard, which is a first for me. Uh, a random anecdote. I was literally on this hike when A24 called me and said, hey, do you want to interview Robert Eggers, and uh, director of Lighthouse, in 10 minutes? And I originally was going to interview them much later in the day. So I said, sure, let's talk to Robert Eggers while I stand here in the cold. So <laughs> when you read my interview with, with Lighthouse director Robert Eggers, uh, imagine me um, like with, literally With chilled. icicles in your beard doing yes. the interview. <laughs> yeah, to the, to the point where at one point Robert Eggers just had to pause and go – like essentially say like can you please mute your phone when you're, when you're not talking it's too windy so i felt like, it was, <laughs> wow. I felt like a shit <laughs> but it was uh you'll read the interview soon enough um the, the real highlight of the trip for me though was wb organized uh, jeep tours of the rocky mountains because s's park is literally two minutes from the rocky mountain national park and it's my first time in the rockies and uh i immediately want to go back I'm, I'm already planning a trip back with my wife she's been before and what an amazing place what a, what a beautiful incredible place just 
95% of, of that park is untouched. That's the, that's like the rules they have. Like the, the paths really aren't paved. They have no recreation. Like they, when they, when the government first bought the land, they tore down the ski resort that was in there and like restored it. It's like natural land. And the Jeep tour just drove us for three hours all over the park. Uh, we couldn't go to the highest paths because of, um, because it was too cold and icy and, the, and we were crashed. <laughs> but, um, we were able to like, you know, drive to remote areas and park and, you know, hike for a few minutes out into the wilderness and, walking through angle deep snow around frozen lakes we saw moose we saw deer we saw elk uh we just it was just an absolutely incredible experience and i'm gonna i'm gonna be a jerk here for a second because we went out in four jeeps and three of the jeeps demanded to turn back halfway through the tour because they were too cold and these were a lot of social media influencers who showed up wearing designer boots and without jackets and, and no gloves to freaking colorado um so our wb rep came to us and said Three of the jeeps are going back. Do you guys want to go back? And I immediately said, "No, I am not going back." And I, I don't know if the rest of my tour was shamed, or or they agreed. But we finished the damn tour. And I saw the rest of the uh, Rocky Mountain tour. And um, if you go on my Instagram or my Twitter page, Twitter feed, you can see some photos from that. From that. And because um, I did my research, I was triple layered. I had hiking boots. I had thick socks. I brought. I had a proper hat and gloves. I, I was. I was prepared for Colorado. I I, I didn't show up Instagram ready. Um, <laughs> and I, oh look, and, and if you're listening to this and this was you, I apologize. But really, ground my gears was that the one group demanded the turn back, and then and then then asked their their Jeep tour driver to find them some from trees that still had leaves so they take fall pictures for their Instagrams. Oh my god! I was horrified. I was thinking, WB is spending all this money on you to have a good time and doing a once in a lifetime thing, and you want to take Instagram pictures in front of fall trees. Uh, all right, I'm sorry. If, 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 that, if that's you <laughs> it, when you're listening, and I'm sure these people are from LA, I, I'm ashamed. I'm sorry, Jacob. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like, I don't know. I, I end up talking at great length with my Jeep tour driver, and he recommended other national parks to visit. So, you know, just I engaged with the locals. I dressed warmly, and I had an amazing time in the Rocky Mountains. It was incredible. What was not incredible was the Shining Ball. Um, this was my this was my hell. It is the uh, Stanley Hotel's annual Halloween party. Everybody shows up dressed in costume. And um, live music, so crowded, you know, old building with live music uh, is was is my hell. Uh, fortunately, wait, wait, wait a second. So the Stanley Mo- uh, Hotel is not the hotel that The Shining was filmed at, but it's based on that. Yeah, it's where Stephen King visited and was inspired to okay. write The Shining there. Um, the hotel where The Shining was actually filmed, I believe, is in Oregon. Uh, but the Shining Ball was just an excuse for men that dressed like the the twins from The Shining. I, I was like, I swear to God, sixty five percent of the costumes were men dressed as the twins from The Shining, thinking they were being clever. Um, <laughs> but uh, what they do have there was that they had an open bar in the VIP area, which I was allowed into. So I went and sat down in the VIP balcony, the haunted VIP balcony. I was told later, uh, drank at the open bar until I was incredibly drunk. And then walked back to my hotel room and not, never thought about the, the shining ball again. So I was the guy who was like, yeah, nature, Jeeps, out, uh, outdoor driving and walking. Whereas everyone else was like, oh, uh, everyone else was equally excited about being at the big party. So that was that. Was that. I guess something for everyone at the Stanley Hotel on SS Park. Um, and also, I guess uh, one last thing I want to talk about is I did interview talent from the film. I interviewed uh, Kylie Curran, who plays uh, Abra, who is a young girl who uh, has The Shining as well. She becomes like Danny's protege in uh, the book and the movie. Uh, she is the purest thing I've ever encountered. She must be protected at all costs. Uh, she would always refer to everybody on set by their first name and uh, 
like Mr. or Miss. So it's always Mr. Mike for Mike Flanagan or Mr. Ewan for Ewan McGregor or Mr. Rebecca <laughs> for Rebecca Ferguson. And it was, it was like, we go, oh my goodness, like she's talking about Ewan McGregor, talking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it's like, oh, Mr. Ewan told me this. I'm like, oh, that's the sweetest damn thing. <laughs> you know, I interviewed uh, Trevor Macy, who's uh, Mike Flanagan's longtime producer. I'll have the interview up soon. And interviewed Mike Flanagan. Uh, who is one of the best interviews I've ever had. The nicest, smartest, sweetest guy. He act. So many directors are it's like pulling teeth. They clearly don't want to be there. Mike Flanagan wants to talk about his movies. He wants to engage. And I hope he can run the interview on this podcast, in addition to the written version. We talked some pretty major spoilers uh, at one point. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene I will not spoil. It's not in Dr. Sleep book. It's not in any of the marketing. But it's going to be the scene people will be talking about. And I can't wait for you to hear Mike Flanagan's reasoning for why it exists. Uh, for... Uh, the non-spoiler version is that it's a scene he wrote to convince Stephen King to let them make Doctor Sleep, uh, because like Stephen King was hesitant about letting them do it. So it's the, the scene, and Mike Flanagan told me that it is the, it's the scene that, as the filmmaker, he thinks it's the right decision, but as a fan of The Shining, he still waffles back and forth on it. So mm-hmm. it's gonna be, it's gonna be the thing that people talk about, and I'll, I I got the complete story about that scene and its genesis. And how it came to be. So when you see Doctor Sleep in a few weeks, you'll, you'll know the scene. We'll have the full story for you. And also, Doctor Sleep is the fourth film to feature a fourth Mike Flanagan project to feature a horrible hand injury. So the, the interview has us talking at length about hand injuries and horror. So uh, look for that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what, what an amazing trip! Uh, you'll you'll see all the, the interviews soon enough. Uh, and like I said, Chris will write the review because um, I feel very compromised to <laughs> write about that movie now. <laughs> Yeah, well, very very cool. Uh, we'll try to get some more. We'll, I'll try to pry a reaction out of you later in this podcast. But uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. And Jacob, you have been reading Doctor Sleep. Yes, I, I reread Doctor Sleep on the uh, plane ride over, and in the days leading up to, my, to the screening uh, of Doctor Sleep. And um, I think this book's okay. It's not as good as, as the Shining movie. Not as good as the Shining book. Stephen King clearly, it's a very clearly a personal, personal book for him. It's about redemption and recovery. Uh, Dan, Danny Torrance, now Dan Torrance, the kid from the Chinese growing up and follows him as an adult. It's about him, you know, finding AA and recovering and, you know, taking control of his life and his ability to shine and his psychic powers. And there's some really moving stuff in there. Uh, and the character stuff works. I, I still think the plot works. It's almost as if a very talented filmmaker could take the structure of this book and then transplant it into a much better movie that pleases people in a better way. But who knows? I can't talk about the movie yet, so who knows if that happened. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, uh, Ben, you've probably also been reading some stuff, right? Yeah, I read, uh, it's called Game of Thrones, A Guide to Westeros and Beyond, the complete series. So um, I think it's Chronicle Books is the publisher that put this out, and they sent this to me, and um, it actually, I didn't realize who the author was, but when I got this in the mail, I was like, oh, this is awesome. It's written by Miles McNutt, who is a, a well-respected TV critic and has been a guest on the Slash Filmcast, and I remember in the early days of the Slash Filmcast hearing him on there and and um, following his TV criticism and stuff since then, and I just didn't have any idea that he had a book coming out, so it was a nice surprise to get that. Um, the book is, is pretty good. It's, a, um, you know, as the title indicates, it's just a guide, so it's, it's not necessarily going to um, tell you anything that you didn't already know about the series. If you're a hardcore Game of Thrones fan, if you've read, you know, George R. R. Martin's books and uh, were obsessed with the series, I don't know if this book is really the thing that you're looking for. But for people who were 
more casual watchers of the show, um, you know, people who finished the show but maybe didn't dive every single week into theories and breakdowns and, and you know, really go deep on the experience. I think this is like sort of the perfect in-between type of book for, for viewers like that. It has like um, – infographics tracking the number of weddings and funerals and battles and like fun things like the number of drinks of wine between Cersei and, and Tyrion. Like there's a, a comparison chart there. Um, there's like maps and, and essays about the characters tracking their journeys all across the, the course of the show. So um, it has a lot of good stuff in it. It's just not really anything, uh, I guess, groundbreaking or new, but it's I, then again, because it's called a guide, it's not really trying to, to do that. So I think for what it is trying to do, it's it's pretty good. So the book comes out on November 5th, and it's called Game of Thrones, A Guide to Westeros and Beyond the Complete Series. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, I finally got to see HBO's Watchmen, which, by the way, after watching this pilot episode, I went to sleep listening to the spoiler podcast that you guys recorded on Monday and I don't know what happened, but, like, I fell asleep, like, 10 minutes into it. And, like, every 10 minutes I'd wake up and just hear, like, you guys talking about Watchmen in my ears. Because <laughs> I'm I had so to... glad that our conversation was compelling enough yeah, to I know. put you to sleep, Peter. <laughs> no, but it was, like, haunting my dreams. Like, it was, like, I'd go to sleep and I would have, like, dreams of Watchmen conversations. And then wake up and you guys were, like. <laughs> Not Watchmen, just Watchmen conversations. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and, like, it was, like, I don't know. And it felt like it was, I mean. <laughs> This does sound insulting, but the, the the podcast episode felt like it was like 10 hours long because I just kept on falling asleep and waking up and it was still going. Wow, this is such a glowing praise for yeah. our work. Peter. Yes, I need to. Love to hear it. Love to hear it from your boss. Love that. <laughs> uh, well, here's the lesson here is don't go to sleep listening to a conversation about a topic that is so, uh, you know, so complicated, so complex as Watchmen. Uh, but I also feel like after half listening to your episode <laughs> that I I also need to rewatch the episode on HBO and I need to re- re-listen to your podcast episode. So I, I don't really feel like uh, giving a in-depth reaction to Watchmen, but I will say that I liked it a lot and I, I feel like I missed some stuff. So I, I feel like I need to rewatch it again. But maybe that's... Maybe that's what Lindelof wants. Uh, ben, what did you think of Watchmen? Uh, I really loved it. And as you mentioned, uh, HT and Chris and I had a big conversation about it. I, I actually was kind of proud of that conversation. I thought we, we yeah. covered pretty no, much all of it. It was very this. good. I was just very tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I guess just to, in order to save time, I'll just sort of point people to that because I feel like we covered – it was like almost an hour long and – um, I feel like we really sort of ran the gamut on all of the big talking points anyway. I'm sure there's still a lot more of the Easter eggs and stuff that even we didn't catch the first time around. But, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that hour of TV. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to revisit it. Am I the only one here? Like, I know you guys all love this this episode, but, like, are you going to rewatch it before the second episode? Any of you? Um, I don't I don't have any plans no. to rewatch it. I don't know. Either of you guys? Um. I might rewatch it um, because, yeah, it's fun to just to talk and unpack everything about what happened and see if we missed any of the um, the nuances that we didn't catch the first time around. I mean, I feel like HBO is going for something like this, especially like what they've been doing with Westworld. Like, I feel like their shows are kind of like you want to rewatch them <laughs> before the next episode. <laughs> There's so, so so much there. Uh Jacob, what is your excuse for not watching Watchmen yet? You're you're like the biggest Watchmen fan 
of everybody on the staff. I was too busy being in the Rocky Mountains and watching Doctor Sleep <laughs> to watch Watchmen. <laughs> but Jacob, you could have left the tour early and went back and, and watched it on uh, HBO Go. Peter, then I would be a monster. You know what, Peter? You <laughs> watched it on your cell phone while you're taking Instagram pictures. <laughs> I, I, I As it was meant to be seen. I would have been the guys behind me before Doctor Sleep who set up their camera crews and then uh, and then faked their whole casual sitting down for the movie conversation and then did three takes of it because you know they had, they needed to make sure that their YouTube channel had footage of them sitting down for the movie. But, you know, just doing it once casually, you know, because they're, they're just buds. They're just buds watching a movie, man. But they did it four or five times right behind me. You know, it's not it's, you know all staged, all fake. You know, maybe they found time for Watchmen. Maybe they did. <laughs> Name names, Jacob. We need. <laughs> I literally did not know any of the social media people. It made me feel ancient. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to Jojo Rabbit. I talked about this last week. I think Chris talked about it a few weeks before that. HT and Ben, you both saw this. Let's start out with HT. What did you think? I really love Jojo Rabbit. It's such a moving, heartwarming comedy that. Uh, really does straddle a line between like satire and sympathetic. Um, but I and I I loved it so dearly that I feel like it doesn't deserve all of the divisive sort of discussions and debates going around it. Um, I do think there are something there are discussions to be had about the idea of whether de- like humanizing Nazis uh, is something that should be done right now. But I don't think that that is necessarily what Jojo Rabbit is doing. Um, I think it's something much more complex and layered than that. And um, the fact that it wears its heart on its sleeve so obviously uh, shows that it's not just about like humanizing monsters, but the but revealing, I feel like, the fact that there are people uh, and complex people who are you know flawed and good in many ways on both sides. I mean, the, now, now that I say it, it does sound like I'm trying to both sides things, which I feel really bad about, but I don't <laughs> think that's the case. And I think Jojo Rabbit um, articulates it so well because it's such a wonderful, heartwarming film. Yeah, it's kind of like the the surface layer gives you a little bit of humor to those characters, but what the movie's message is, is not a both sides type of message, you know? So yeah. it, it's, I, I think that's where maybe some of the divisiveness is coming from is people, um, I don't know, maybe just... Uh, ben, are you saying people are bad at watching movies? <laughs> I guess they're just taking issue with the the way this particular story is told, Chris. I don't know. If that would I don't know. I, I, I saw this at TIFF. I gave this a rave review. Everyone at TIFF loved it. And then, like, the next day, the, the, the backlash, like, immediately started. And, like, there are people who are acting like this is not just a bad movie, but like one of the worst movies of the year. And I don't know what is going on with this. I mean, you know, everyone's opinion is different on things, but I think it's a wonderful movie. I'm very surprised at the weird sort of reactions to this. I mean, I get it. It's a tricky subject, but I think the movie handles that subject really well. And it does it in this very interesting way, but I don't know. I get, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Chris, are no, you I suggesting think you're that right, people? Chris. Have, is Chris like suggesting that. that people sometimes don't know how to properly talk about art? <sighs> I would never do that. I mean, <laughs> people like to talk in keywords and um, you know, uh, and phrases that are hot 
hot topic or I don't know I don't know what the word is but you know keywords and those kind of things and I think it reduces a film like like Jojo Rabbit down to a tagline and I don't think that's the case I think that this is a film that is really deeply human and humanistic and comes from a really complicated really dark time in our history from that perspective were, were you looking for buzzwords buzzwords that's yeah what I was looking for. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just say really quickly that I liked the movie and didn't love it. I, I appreciated it. I, I, um, I, I think the biggest thing for me was that I just wanted it to be a little bit funnier than it was. I, I think it's one of those movies where I was like smiling most of the way through it, but rarely actually laughing out loud. And I, you know, based on Taika Waititi's previous work, I was just sort of hoping for um, more laugh out loud moments. I guess that's probably a uh, problem with my own expectations of the movie versus what it, it actually is. But that's just how I walked away from it. So I, I liked it. I would recommend it. I just didn't love it as much as I hoped I would. I, I think I fall closest to Ben. Like I was smiling throughout and I did really like it. Like I looked at my my best of the year list if it was published today and still it's in there. But I think that says more about this year in movies than it does that film in particular, but, um, or what you've seen so far anyway. or what I've seen. Yeah. What I've seen. Yeah, that is true. I have not seen a, a couple of the big films that you guys have loved, but I, I feel like this year has not been that great thus far, but, um, I could be wrong. Okay. Uh, what have I seen? What, what did I watch this week? And I guess my list of things that I watched this week is not going to convince you that I I'm, I'm making good choices, but, uh, I did go to the Mandalorian junket and I was presented with a 27-minute special presentation of footage from The Mandalorian. This is the upcoming Disney Plus series from producer John Favreau. Um, it wasn't 30 minutes of the pilot episode. It was 30 minutes of combined footage from the first three episodes. Uh, the reason why they did this is supposedly because they wanted to keep the surprises under wraps. So like it would show a scene and someone would come into a doorway or something like that. I'm, I'm being very vague because I'm not allowed to talk plot specifics. Um, and they would cut. So we wouldn't know who was it that came through the doorway. Do you know what I mean? Like, so they're trying to keep when we talk to, to the filmmakers involved, they don't want us asking questions that are spoilers. This is something that has been done with the previous Star Wars films. I think Solo might be the only one that like we got to see it before the junket. And um but the interesting thing here is apparently they are not going to be giving copies of the Mandalorian to critics before they release on the service. Uh Disney Plus is going to be giving copies of the other shows and stuff like that. I'm not sure if the Marvel shows, but like um other shows on that service, but I guess uh, critics are going to have to watch Mandalorian at the same time as general audiences. And I'm, Chris, I'm wondering, I, I know that you might not have been in line to, to review this, but like, how do you feel about that? Like, 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 is that, and I, I know that some critics have been online, uh, complaining about this, but why, why should be like, why is it just critics are upset that they didn't get something early or is there a benefit for critics? I, I guess I'm handing you, uh, <laughs> I'm basically making your argument for you, but what do you think about this? I mean, I guess it depends on where you fall on, on this argument. And I, I don't know. I, I think the benefit of giving critics things early is to, I don't know. I don't know how to go about this without being like 
it's my job. I, I, I need this to happen or I don't have a yeah. job. Well, you like, also that's... have to have a review up the next morning. And then like, right. if you see this film and it comes out that I, I, we don't even know when this is going to come out. If this comes out at midnight and say you were reviewing this, you would have to watch it at midnight and then stay up until right. 5 a.m. writing. Right, exactly, and and that's not fun. I don't know, <laughs> it's, but it's, I mean, like this is a thing yeah. that like it doesn't affect you if you're not yeah. a critic, I guess. But I don't know. It's, well, I, it's... I think it is going to affect people that are not critics because they're going to end up getting subpar criticism. Right, because you have to. People are going to have to rush it, and you know, I mean, I do think there is something to be said about embargo dates and. Like, you know, the embargo for, like, Joker broke, like, months in advance, and by the time the movie came out, it felt like old news. So I do think there is something to be said about having embargo dates be a little closer to release dates. Like, Terminator is another one. That embargo's up. That movie's not out for, uh, like, two weeks, and it feels like by the time that comes out, we're already going to be done talking about it. But at the same time, it's, you know, to hold it until, like, the last minute like that, does I think it does the show a disservice, but I, uh, you know, that's I'm sure people will disagree. Yeah. I agree, and especially something like Star Wars or Marvel, where there's like Easter eggy things and connections to other things in the cinematic universes. Like, uh, I feel like that stuff requires research, it requires some time, and I really hope Disney Plus decides to change their their stance on that. But, anyways, uh, I'm not allowed to. T- to review this uh, what i saw but i can uh, give you a reaction which i gave on social media i will say that this is like a thrilling return to the the era of the original trilogy i mean i guess it's after that but it feels very much like the original trilogy and this feels more like a big scale movie than it does a tv series like it looks and feels expensive the cg like i feel like we always throughout our lives have been chasing like from Star Trek to whatever we've been chasing uh CG that looked as good as it does on the big screen and that we had moments of that like the you know the the space battles and like uh, Battlestar Galactica stuff like that like there was moments where like we made ba- major leaps and I feel like this is making a, a huge leap for us here because it really does feel like a movie um the the score is awesome uh, seeing Dave Filoni, who's done Star Wars Rebels and Clone Wars, do live action Star Wars, it's everything I wanted. And, um, you know, I have I- a I have a question. I don't know if you can answer this because I don't know if it'll count as a review or not. But so much was made about the the that, like the the tech on this show, like how they're doing like the the backgrounds and stuff. Like, did you notice anything like that or? I did not notice anything having to do with background, but me, honestly, the best special effects are the ones you don't notice, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but I will say that the Mandalorian at one point uh, hasn't uh, has some altercation with some creatures, and those creatures look fully realized in a photo real way that, like, I'm guessing uses the same technology that John Favreau used on like Jungle Book and Lion King. Like, they look like real, um, which I'm sure maybe some people might even complain because the creatures in star wars look are supposed to look more puppeted i think uh but uh i don't know uh some intense stuff i was really impressed by this i can't wait to see more i can't wait for november 12th to come it's my birthday and it's also the launch of disney plus and the show so i'm super excited so um but uh yeah it looks like we're all gonna be watching this together (laughs) Uh, I also went to the theater to see Zombieland Double Tap. I used my AMC A-list because, you know, I got to make use of that somehow. And um, 
this is the sequel to the movie that came out, I think, a decade ago or so. Uh, this is enjoyable, but disposable. Uh, Zoe Dutch is amazing in it. So much of it feels like, like, there's these jokes about, like, I, I think someone says, uh, like, Tallahassee says, like, his nut up or shut up line. I, and then someone says, like, that's so 2009. And so much of this film feels like that. Um, but, uh, it is, it is enjoyable, more enjoyable than I thought I was going to be. Uh, the ending is complete and utter crap. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would give like zombie land, like maybe a three out of five stars or something like that. Um, the, the next thing I want to talk about, this is something I want to recommend to everybody. I watched this series called unbelievable on Netflix and this is a true crime, uh, it's an eight-episode limited series. Uh, I would say it's very binge-worthy. Like, we, we got through it in two days. Um, it starts out with an 18-year-old girl uh, played by Caitlin Deaver, who uh, we saw in Booksmart, and she was also in Short Term 12. Uh, she's fantastic in this. Uh, she's also in Justified. Um, she is raped she 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 suffers a rape um it's the story isn't so much about her i don't want to i don't know how much i want to give away but there's an investigation into her case there is a serial rapist that is being investigated uh by tony collette uh she plays detective grace rosamond and uh merit weaver and uh this series this uh limited series i guess it could be an anthology series because unbelievable is such like uh broad word for a show uh was co-created by Susanna Grant who was the writer of Aaron Brockovich she also wrote an episode uh Michael Dinner from Justified uh directed an episode Lisa uh Chloe Dink oh my god I can't pronounce her name Co- oh uh Cholodinko I think Cholodinko yes uh who directed the kids are all right which I know Jacob hates <laughs> she also directed the episode um and uh it, this has such intense, powerful performances. The uh, the it just it, I if I'm going to tell you one show that you're not watching on TV that is on right now, this is on Netflix, and you're probably like scrolling by it the tile. I would say check out Unbelievable on Netflix. Uh, it's it, it's so good. Uh, I will say that like it starts off one way and becomes a different thing. Like Tony Collette, I, I would say is the main character of the piece i think and she doesn't appear until really episode three end of episode two so it, it become it, it is not done in a traditional way i would highly recommend this i think um ben i think this is totally up your alley uh because you like uh kind of true crime stuff yeah uh, it's it's in my queue i'm very much looking forward to it you're not the first person that i've heard rave about the show so i'm, I'm really looking forward to checking this one out yeah um, okay, and I also finished watching HBO's Years After Years. Uh, I did like this series. I talked about this, I think, a couple weeks ago. I will say that the last episode is kind of uh, a failing of, of massive proportions, but I would still recommend you see it, uh, even uh, if, if that whole concept sounded appealing to you. Um, HT, I tried watching Dark Crystal. Here's where you get mad at me. Oh, no. Uh, um you know this. The show starts. It's so beautiful. The puppets are amazing. It's a a, a complete uh, 
perfect mashup of C- a CG worlds and these uh, these sets, these elaborate sets and the puppets, and it's just so beautiful. And like this this series opens up with like much like the film where it has like this voiceover for like the first ten minutes while it's explaining everything about this world and it's also using like this game of thrones where it's like jumping from land to land like giving you the way out of everything and i was just like i just can't do this right now no you have to get past that because i will say <laughs> those first 10 minutes are rough because it just kind of it it first gives you that exposition dump and then it just drops you in the middle of this of this giant uh lavish world but it gets so good peter it gets so good yeah, I, I maybe I'll give it another chance because I love Henson. I, I I want I want to love this. I'm also not a fantasy person. Oh no, I, I will give it another chance because it, it does look so beautiful. I watched the pilot episode of the ABC series Stumptown. The stars Colby Smulders uh, from you might know her from the Avengers and the Marvel films. Uh, she plays a smart witted army veteran who becomes a private investigator in Portland, Oregon, which is also known as Stumptown, where she takes care of her brother. Um, it, this comes from creator Greg Rucka. I, it has Jake Johnson, some other people that you might like. The soundtrack is incredible. Like it just has like hit after hit has some fun action, but I couldn't get through the entire first episode actually, because it feels like so networky. I feel like such a snob. But, like, whenever I give a network show a chance, like, it just feels like I just can't do it. Like, those where it, like, has the cliffhanger before the commercial and it's just, like, too glossy and not edgy enough and not real. I don't know. It's just does anybody else here have problems watching network television now that we live in the streaming age? Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> I'm, I feel, yeah, the same, uh, the same sort of, like, um, I don't know, elitism, I guess you would call it. Like, that's the feeling I get whenever I try to watch a network show. And there are some exceptions, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place and stuff like that are are network shows. And I thank God for them every day because they're incredible shows and I love them. But, um, yeah, when it comes to, like, procedural stuff like that, it can – it just feels so uh, of another era um, compared to all the stuff that's been on, you know, in cable and streaming over the past decade plus. Like, the whole time I was watching it, I was just thinking, like – how much better this could be if it was on Netflix or even like AMC or something. It just like doesn't quite get there, but I think people will like it. So uh, I'm, uh, I don't know. Watch it if, if, if you're okay watching network TV. The comic's really good, Peter. And, and, and I feel like ABC is just a bad fit for that comic. Every time I, it's like, it's like an AMC or an HBO show, which when they somehow put on network kind of drives me crazy. Yeah. I will say that she is great in this role. Like, she's really – I feel like she hasn't gotten a chance to show off her acting chops. Like, especially in, like, big films, she's been kind of just like, you know, she's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, in, in that, that kind of stuff. Like, this – she actually gets uh, a lot of uh, room to actually show you her acting abilities. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, um, I also watched Between Two Ferns, the movie on Netflix, because we were bored and we couldn't find anything to watch. Uh, Kitra put this on. I'm not a big fan of, uh, honestly, of Zach Galifianakis or the Between the Two Ferns, but I did enjoy watching them because uh, in their time they were funny. This movie, I think, is less so. It has this contrived story of him, the the character he plays, traveling the country to tape interviews. Um, it ends with a credit scene that takes place with, like, bloopers, and I think the blooper 
real is probably funnier than the movie itself. Has any anybody else seen this? Guessing not. No. Okay. I think Brad talked about it. Yeah. Um, if I could be, I could be wrong about that, but I, I think he has watched it. Yeah, I think it's a skip unless you like really, really, really love Zach Galifianakis. Um, but uh, yeah. So, uh, Jacob, you mentioned earlier that you saw Doctor Sleep and you couldn't talk about it. But we're now like so far into this podcast. No, I mean no studio is listening, so you you can you can tell us, right? Um, I cannot tell you about anything about Doctor Sleep until the embargo breaks on Friday, where I may or may not talk about how it may or may not be another winner for Mike Flanagan. But I can't say that. Ah, interesting. <laughs> okay, uh, then I guess we'll just go to Ben. Ben, what have you been watching this week? I had a couple interviews over the past few days, so I've been re-watching some things that I've seen before. Um, first up was Paradise Hills, which was my favorite movie at this year's Sundance Film Festival. This movie comes out this Friday, um, I think in limited release, but I had a chance to speak with the director, Alice Waddington, so I, I wanted to re-watch the movie, and just, you know, it's been, what, 10 months since I've seen the movie, so I just wanted to make sure that I had everything uh, right, and um, I still really, really like that movie a lot. I think... Uh, I was blown away by the the visual style of it the first time. And once that sort of magic um, wears off a little bit, then the movie doesn't quite uh, stand on like this super high plateau that I put it on after first viewing. But, you know, that's sort of an unfair thing to to apply, try to apply to any movie after you see it more than once. So um, I, I still stand by my praise for this movie. I think there's a lot to really, really love here. And um, especially for a smaller budgeted movie, I think um, it, it has a lot to offer in terms of visuals and the performances are all really good. So um, anyway, that's Paradise Hills. It comes out in theaters this Friday. Uh, I also rewatched the Pixar story, which was from 2007. It was a documentary uh, directed by, written and directed by Leslie Iwerks who I had a chance to interview because uh, late last week I went to a brief presentation from Disney Plus about the documentary stuff that they have coming up on the streaming service. And Leslie Iwerks is going to be directing something called The Imagineering Story, which is sort of like a her, her version of the Pixar story, but for Disney Imagineering. Um, so it's all about the theme parks and all that stuff. I, I didn't see any footage from that aside from the trailer that's already been made available online. But um, having a chance to talk to her, I... I you know, had it. I wanted to rewatch the Pixar story, which traces the first, uh, you know, like the it's like the definitive Pixar documentary in terms of how the company came to be. It's all stories that we're probably all familiar with at this point. But just as I appreciated the actual craft of the, you know, being able to put the story together in a cohesive and entertaining way. Um, it is really weird to see John Lasseter, um, you know, front and center in this thing, knowing the stories that we've heard about him since there, it, it you know, since, since then in the past year or so, it's, um, it's very, very strange to, uh, to go back and think about some of the things that maybe were going on behind the scenes that nobody knew about. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I, so I guess because of that, I don't know if I can recommend wholeheartedly like going back to check this out because it might just weird people out to do that because um, he's he is all over this thing. He is like the primary force behind it. And, um, you know, I don't want to discount like his uh, his contributions to Disney and Pixar and storytelling and animation and directing and all that stuff. But it is just a, it's a strange thing to do. So um wanted to mention that. Yeah. And, and, then, and it's also a movie that's like produced alongside Disney and feels very candy coated. Yeah. I yeah, say. yeah. 
Yeah, there's not much in there by way of, um, you know, uh, it, it's not really like un, uncover. You don't get the sense anyway that it's uncovering every single stone, and it's it's really like going after the hard truth of of what happened there. They they sort of tell some stories about a few disagreements here and there, but it you don't really get the sense that this is like the full uncut version of the story. Um, and I don't know if we're ever going to get that, uh, especially, you know, with the Disney umbrella sort of protecting <laughs> the Pixar. But, um, but yeah, it seems like maybe there's a little bit more to, to tell. So maybe somebody will do that one day, but in any case, I am looking forward to the engineer, uh, the uh, Imagineering story that looks pretty good. So that'll be a, a day one release on Disney plus. Um, and that, that's not just a movie. That's like a series, right? Yeah. It's a six episode, I think six hour series about the entire history of Imagineering. I feel like you, Peter and yeah. Jacob are just going to have a field day with that thing. So, <laughs> um, but I had a, a good chat with iWorks about it and, um, we'll probably play that maybe a little closer to that show's release. Uh, I also, Guys, rewatched... on, uh, on, on November 12th, I'm taking the day off just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, celebrate your birthday in style. Um, I also rewatched Toy Story of Terror, which is a movie that uh, my wife and I try to watch every Halloween and uh, or Halloween season, I should say. Uh, this is from 2013. It's a, like a 22 minutes short uh, set in the, the Toy Story world. And I probably talked about it, you know, on previous Halloween, previous October episodes of this podcast. I'm not going to really go long on it or anything. It's a lot of fun. I would recommend if you are still subscribing to cable, if you haven't cut the cord or um or whatever that, or I guess maybe <laughs> I was going to say cable, but it's really on ABC is where a lot of times it plays. Um, sometimes it plays on Freeform, which used to be ABC family. So anyway, maybe just search for it if you're uh, in your like DVR or whatever, and you might be able to find it, you know, playing and, and repeating over and over again as the, the actual Halloween approaches. But um, I would recommend it. It's a lot of fun and it, it sort of um, it plays well on, what has had been established in the Toy Story franchise up till that point, like Jesse's fear of being in a box. It, that, that's like a big um, part of this thing. So that's Toy Story of Terror. It's a lot of fun. Uh, okay, so then moving on beyond things that I, I rewatched, I watched two movies um, uh, new to me this week. Um, one is in theaters this Friday. It's called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. And it's a documentary about... Uh, sound in movies, sound designers, um, sound editors, uh, Foley artists, all of that stuff. So it's it's very technical. And if you're or, or the the documentary itself is not technical, it's actually um, pretty uh, light. But if you're interested in the technical side of filmmaking, I, I would recommend it. It's like an hour and a half, and um, it comes out in theaters. I don't I don't know if I would recommend seeing it in the theaters. It doesn't really seem like a theatrical release to me. It seems like it should probably be going you know, or, or might be better served for, uh, people who are interested, you know, straight where you can just watch it from the comfort of your couch. But, um, it, it touches on Ben Burt, who is the famous sound designer behind star Wars and Walter Murch and the history of like American Zoetrope, the company that Coppola and, and all those guys founded. And, uh, it touches on a lot of like innovations in sound, like citizen Kane, for example, I knew was hailed at the time for its cinematography and like editing innovations, but I had no idea that it was also breaking new ground, in the sound department as well, because Orson Welles um, really like gave every location in that movie its own soundscape, you know, like echoes in big rooms and sort of reverberations and stuff like that, that, that weren't really being done on that scale at that time. So um, even me, you know, somebody who <laughs> has worked on uh, in the film industry a little bit here and there and, and 
thought I knew a lot about uh, how, how the sound department works. Um, it taught me some stuff too. So anyway, that's Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. It's in theaters this Friday. And then finally, really quickly, um, I watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire and holy shit, this movie blew me away. Um, I It's like up there with Parasite for me as like my one and two of the year so far. Um, it is so incredible. So the movie comes is written and directed by Celine Siama. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, French director. It's a French movie. It is unbelievable. It's about this woman who is an artist who uh, this, she's a painter and she goes to paint a portrait of this sort of enigmatic woman on uh on an isolated island somewhere and the woman whose portrait is being painted doesn't want it to be painted because it means that uh when the portrait is done it's going to be presented to her suitor as part of this wedding this elaborate um wedding thing and so once this painting is done it basically means she's taking the next step into a, a different chapter of her life so she has been i guess there have been multiple painters who have tried to capture her likeness and failed because this woman is basically like sabotaging all of the the artists that uh, have been coming along. So this uh, movie follows this painter who goes and and sort of like surreptitiously tries to paint her like without her knowledge, and um, it, it it just becomes. I don't want to really give much away, but it's one of the most um, profoundly uh, human and just deeply moving movies I've seen in a long, long time. It is a uh, really beautiful filmmaking and um, incredible performances from the leads who I'd never seen before. So that kind of helps, you know, like immerse you into that world as well. Um, man, this is just like, for me, one of easily one of the best movies of the year. So uh, it's called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I would highly, highly recommend it. It comes out in the U.S. on December 6th. Why didn't I watch this instead of Between Two Ferns or Zombieland <laughs> Double Tap? I'll never know, Peter. What am I doing with my life? I, I still need to see that. That's on my list. And uh, the other uh, Parasite is also, yeah. Oh, so, God, Peter, you watched that before you saw Parasite? What are you doing with your life? No well, wonder you think this movie isn't, this year isn't good for movies. Yeah, You're exactly. missing out on two of the best movies of the Parasite year. Parasite <laughs> is not available on AMC A-List. I missed all my screenings. So I'm, <sighs> I'm waiting until there's an opportunity because I'm paying for the sale list. Why should I pay for an actual movie? Because it's the best movie of this year and it's worth your money. Go yeah. see it, Peter. They're showing um, Parasite now on AMC A-List Artisan. Are they? I, yeah, I saw, I, I just booked a ticket for it. So Okay, maybe, it's, maybe it. it happened this week or something because I think yeah. last week I looked and it wasn't available in my area. But, uh, okay, HD, what have you been watching? <laughs> Uh, I've had a more mixed bag of movies this week. Uh, I saw Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which for which I wrote the review, and um, you can see that on the site. And I have to say that this movie was a disappointment to me. I am one of the few people who actually liked the 2014 Maleficent. I really enjoyed how it was a subversion of the traditional Sleeping Beauty fairy tale and kind of reframed the villain of that, of that piece to be... Um, not more uh, like more sympathetic, but also more uh, of a complex person, and uh, turned it basically into this rape revenge story, which I really enjoyed the social sort of um, added social commentary and, and uh, depth to that. And Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, does something of the same thing in an attempt to uh, tell a sort of socially relevant. Um, uh, issue and turn it into a greater sort of fairy tale uh, um, 
metaphor. And it does that with basically a Holocaust metaphor. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a fairy genocide in this basically. And I really admired what it was trying to do in terms of expanding the world and, myth and the mythology and creating this really, really lavish, um, beautiful design for some of these um, sort of cavernous uh, landscapes that we get to see. But there is an ending that I won't spoil that really sours me on what the movie was trying to do and made me almost actively angry about uh, with this film. It just um, kind of tries to give a fairy tale ending to something that's a lot more complex and um, harder and challenging than that. So I think that it tries to do something a little bit more ambitious uh, and audacious, but it kind of stumbles and doesn't stick the landing which is unfortunate because it really does look beautiful. And at points it reminds me of something like Avatar meets Dark Crystal meets some of like the Game of Thrones political intriguing uh, and, and scheming that takes place. So it, it tries a lot, but it doesn't succeed at, uh, at, at everything it's trying to do. Very uh, Well, that, 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 that sucks. Uh, what else have you been watching? Another disappointing movie, and this is a movie called Black and Blue. It stars Naomi Harris and Tyrese Gibson, and Naomi Harris stars as a rookie policewoman in New Orleans who accidentally uh, captures on her body cam the shooting of a young drug dealer by one of her uh, a policemen, and she basically tries to uh, to run from. Uh, captured by the police that are all corrupt and uh, expose the corruption with the footage that she captured. And there are some, I feel like there was some sociopolitical commentary that this film is trying to portray or deliver. And it, it does not, it often just ends up doing away with that for a Jason Bourne style thriller that really reduces whatever it was intending to do. Basically, the two movies that I saw that, is, that I dis were disappointed with uh, were movies that had some noble social uh, intention and ended up botching those. And Black and Blue did that, unfortunately. That, that, that is also disappointing. Yes. But uh, a movie that I did enjoy that I watched on the Criterion channel is A Hard Day's Night. Um, this is the Beatles sort of mock mockumentary uh, rock and roll musical. It's not really a mockumentary, I guess. It's more of just kind of a musical comedy. And it's one that is considered one of the classic rock and roll comedies. Um, and it's it's so fun. I know that I know of A Hard Day's Night. I know like the place that it holds in pop culture, but I hadn't realized how much of an impact it had on pop culture because so much of this film, which is really just like an absurd day in the life comedy um, that has shades of Monty Python and a lot of wry British humor. Uh, it has trickled down to a lot of things I loved. I can specifically say maybe like Ferris Bueller and its uh, depiction of just like these ragamuffin scoundrels who are off and like having a bunch of antics uh, a lot of the imagery and a lot of that the, those uh, themes are shared between A Hard Day's Night and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and I really enjoyed watching that and um, yeah this is a film that uh, I highly recommend it's directed by Richard Lester stars the Beatles as heightened versions of, the, of themselves as they attempt to make a performance and end up being uh, foiled by various hijinks 
Yeah, I, I feel like the monkeys also kind of like took inspiration from that that classic film. Oh, for sure. Well. Um, what else have you been watching? Some t- some TV. Yes, I watched the first four episodes of His Dark Materials. I got them as screeners, and you can see my full review, spoiler-free, on SlashFilm.com. And this is a show that I was really anticipating, but also was anxiously anticipating because the novels by Philip Pullman uh, are near and dear to my heart. And I had been burned before by the 2007 feature film, uh, the Golden Compass, directed by Chris Weitz, and um, it was a completely botched adaptation of Philip Pullman's books, which are kind of a uh, inversion of Milton's Paradise Lost. And I have to say, HBO's His Deck Materials is fantastic. It does so much justice by uh, Pullman's novels, and it uh, it approaches the story from a decidedly more mature, more serious uh, um perspective. The Golden Compass, when it came out in 2007, was very much uh, part of that Harry Potter uh, knockoff trend that would, you know, come to theaters and subsequently disappear soon after. Um, And this uh, HBO series, um, His uh, His Dark Materials, which is named after the entire trilogy of novels, uh, feels very much like a darker fantasy that's almost that's um, almost molded, I wouldn't say molded, but that comes in the wake of uh, Game of Thrones. And I say that in that it doesn't imitate Game of Thrones necessarily, but it gives equal weight to both the character dramas and intrigue, as well as the more fantastical elements. And these fantastical elements I I speak of are the talking animals, which you will see uh, if you're not familiar with them. uh, His Dark Materials takes place in a world in which uh, humans' consciousness, their souls, uh, basically take the, ter- the form of an animal that they can talk with and which walk and travel alongside them outside of their body. And uh, as children, that these animals can shapeshift into um, any sort of animals. They're called demons. Uh, but once they hit puberty, um, once they come of age, they the demons... Um, to settle down into one singular form that will basically tell a person who, what kind of person that person is, like their personality. Um, and so it's a, it's a nice little personality test, but it, um, it, it's a very like fantastical world that has a very like childish adventure in at least the first book um, and that this first season will cover. But a lot of the later books and the storylines from those books are sort of seeded into this first season and attempt to make it a little bit more uh, intriguing and dramatic and tense. And I was nervous about how the series would look because it's directed by Tom Hooper, who has has a lot of Oscar nominations, but not necessarily ones that he would deserve, I guess you would say. Um, he has a very like washed out sort of um, handheld, a lot of negative space style that I felt like wasn't fitting towards the world uh, that Philip Pullman created. His world is just so rich and sumptuous. Um, but yeah, how many Dutch angles? How many unnecessary Dutch lot, angles? There's a lot of Dutch angles, and it bothered me. But he only directs the first two episodes, and once he gets his hand off of those, it. It improves immensely, but he does kind of establish that house style. Um, and there are like, there's a lot of shots where there's just so much negative space that you don't need it. But it and does kind of wash out the show a little bit. 
but the the performances make up for whatever visual stumbles that the series has, uh, especially Daphne Keene, who plays Lyra, the young girl who uh, comes and in co- comes into contact with this uh, golden compass, this truth telling device, um, and uh, goes on a quest to to rescue her young her friend from child kidnappers. She's great. Daphne Keene, you might recognize from Logan, uh, as well as Ruth Wilson, who is just fantastic as the villain. She is amazing and just a dynamite to watch. And um, one of the best female TV villains I've seen in recent years. She's just so icy and and fiery and vulnerable and savage and feral at the sa- all at the same time. And I love her. So I'm really excited to see what lies beyond these first four episodes, which I absolutely adored. And um, I, I think that HBO is just um, two for two right now for their fall TV series. HD, I, I need to know, uh, how is Hot Air Balloon Cowboy Lin-Manuel Miranda? <laughs> so <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda is playing like the swashbuckling aeronaut who uh, flies a hot air balloon. And he gives this real theatrical performance, which I, I first like, you can't, you, you can't really take him seriously because it's so theatrical, but um, he kind of gives the comedic relief that the show um, doesn't really have until he appears. He has like this sort of buddy comedy dynamic going with both him and his demon, which is a, a hare named Hester, as well as with Daphne Keene. They have a really fun um, push-pull dynamic. So he he... He's supposed to be the swashbuckling, sort of gritty character, but I like that Lin-Manuel Miranda doesn't play into that entirely. He just kind of, he's just like, I'm theatrical, and I know it, and <laughs> it's, it, that's, it works. It works for the character a lot. So Something I've been thinking about recently, you mentioned like the Game of Thrones-ification uh, in the show, and mm-hmm. I've been noticing that a lot lately. So much so, like, I feel like, you know, I mentioned Dark Crystal, um, but I feel like from 2008 to you know the, the last 10, 10 or so years we had like the dark knight had like such a huge impact on our pop culture and the stories how stories were told and like from what kind of tone and like a dark vision and it, it, they were always trying to capture that and didn't quite do that and i feel like now we're in the the post dark knight uh vacation of pop culture we're now in the game of thrones of vacation of pop culture i, I wanted to hear since you, you know what your thoughts were on that I have mixed feelings about it because I know that Amazon right now is kind of trying to create their own Game of Thrones with Lord of the Rings, uh, which is a series that I feel like doesn't deserve or need the Game of Thrones treatment. It's a high fantasy series that is high fantasy to the fullest and doesn't need to be gridified or uh, grounded in any way that the Game of Thrones did. So I I think it's interesting that his Dark Materials... um, kind of doesn't completely take the Game of Thrones influence in terms of just trying to be dark and gritty and, and serious, but it does have, it does feel like it ha- it it is slightly influenced by it because of just how drastically different it is from like the original 2007 film. So um, I do like the, the idea that Game of Thrones has made fantasy uh, a credit, credited or credible genre. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling outside of, like, uh, even fantasy. Like, um, I know I only watched a few episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Jacob, you're a fan of that show, right? I have a relationship with it, yes. 
I feel like that that show also took the Game of Thronesification with like the Klingon, how they dealt with the Klingons in that series, or at least the episodes I saw. Like, are you feeling this in in your pop culture as well? Oh yeah, Game of Thrones is is the thing. Like, you were incredibly spot on with um your Dark Knight uh comparison because it like everything chased Dark Knight. Like even James Bond chased Dark Knight with with, with Skyfall. You know, it just that everybody wants to try to get that lightning in the bottle, and Game of Thrones was, you know an era-defining piece of pop culture, and we're going to be seeing it until the next era-defining piece of pop culture comes around to supplant it. And I like Game of Thrones a lot, as, as listeners know. Um, I am not looking forward to 10 years of people, like, really trying to recapture that with stuff that probably should not be built around it. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see. Uh, my hope, <laughs> my, my, my hope is that people will uh, use this opportunity to make, like, mature complex genre storytelling for adults as opposed to um thinking just backstabbing and nudity is the key to um what made that show popular okay let's move on to what we've been eating i like i mentioned earlier i went to galaxy's edge this week in disneyland uh which i went uh, last wednesday a week ago which i just found out uh because of news reports that there was a someone with measles was there that day so now i gotta worry about that but uh aside from that um i did go there to experience the new food they rolled out some new food in batu that included at ronto's roasters they have this thing called the ronto wrap they have introduced a new version of that called the ronto list ronto wrap which is um, a meatless uh, version of it in it. It almost tastes like uh, the meat inside it. Like it has some like toppings, like kimchi and stuff. It tastes almost like like the meat from a dumpling. And it, it, it I could not tell like, if you told me this was some kind of meat, I would believe you. Like it does not. I'm I'm so surprised at the meatless options and how good they are. Um, we tried a bunch of stuff. I'll put a link to the video in the show notes. But the other winner that we tried was uh, Katsaka's Kettle, which usually has this thing called Outpost Mix, which is this colorful popcorn. They now have added this chocolate popcorn, uh, which is chocolate, and it's uh, chocolate salted. The salt is red salt from the planet Crate, which kind of drives me crazy because if you've seen The Last Jedi, the surface area, the white surface is actually the salt and the red is actually a mineral beneath the surface that is not salt. And the fact that Galaxy's Edge has gotten this wrong annoys me in my canon obsessed uh, person. And I've looked online and that is true. It's actually canon that the red is like this other substance that's not salt. Anyways. Peter, this really bothers me too. Like you you said this and like I felt a swell of weird (laughs) anger in me. I I can't quite define (laughs) Like, they have a Lucasfilm story group, it's some of which I'm friends with. I, I don't know. I'm I'm wondering like what went into that decision because that seems like it's a canning. I don't know. Like, did did Disney even consult them on this? It's so like it. It, it would have taken them five minutes to check this. They're a multi-billion-dollar organization. They spent how much money on Galaxy's Edge? And they can't check the color of thick salt. <laughs> Peter, I'm angry. I'm mad about this. My immersion is broken. (laughs) Well, anyways, you can watch our video. Uh, I did not realize this when I was eating it because I was so much enjoying it. So I only realized this after the fact. But you can watch our video. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Jacob, what have you been eating this week? Uh, I ate around Estes Park a bit. You know, it's a small town, decent food. The uh, Stanley Hotel's restaurant, very mediocre for the prices that they are charging you to eat there. Can't recommend that you eat at Stanley Hotel if you stay there. But... 
the bar is quite something. They have a the largest whiskey collection in Colorado, but I didn't drink much whiskey because they have a drink there called the Red Rum Punch, leaning heavily onto the Shining uh, references. And Red Rum Punch is essentially a rum punch that they use, uh, I think it was blackberry and raspberry liqueur to create like, you know, the actual dark blood color. So like you're drinking blood and this stuff was everywhere. Like everybody was drinking Red Rum Punches. It's like, it's like their signature drink, I think. And Every open bar, every WB event over the trip had them serving red rum punch. I drank way too much of it. And uh, at one point at the uh, Shining Ball, I drank 10 of them. And I went up back to my hotel room and vomited for about five minutes. And it all was like blood. And and it was one of the worst moments of the entire trip. Uh, So I recommend the red rum punch. Just don't drink 10 of them. (laughs) I mean, I think that's life advice in general, right? Yeah. Everything in moderation. <laughs> Look, uh, Doctor Sleep, Sleep, the book and the movie, is about a recovering alcoholic who reaches his low and has to rise up to, like, you know. Wait a second. So you're is. saying this was this decision was method? Yeah, it's, this it's was me, research it's, for your Mike Flanagan it, interview. It, it is me understanding where Dan Torrance is at the start of his story. Clearly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, what have you been playing this week, Jacob? Uh I was at a lot of airports and a lot of shuttles from airports to remote mountain towns and on planes. So I played Resident Evil 4 on Nintendo Switch. And Resident Evil 4 was, back in the day, it was the game. Like I played it so many times on PlayStation 4. It was originally a GameCube game in 2004. And this was the Resident Evil game that, like, for better or worse, pushed the, the series uh, into action territory and kind of left horror behind. A series has since come back to horror. It's got like, a loop back around, but it's very much just horror-tinged action game, and man, back in the day, it was like the best-looking game, the best-playing game. It was so cool, and the fact that I'm now playing it portably on an airplane on a Nintendo Switch is insane. Like, if you told me back 2004, hey, this game will soon in, in 15 years, you can play it in your hand. I'm like, no, you're a liar. No, There's no such thing as a better-looking game than Resident Evil 4. It's the best game of all time. It All these years later, it's, it's interesting because the controls are now super clunky. It still looks surprisingly good, but it still looks, looks like a, a game came out in the 2000s. Um, it is super cheesy cornball and uh, chauvinist towards female characters. Uh, but you know what? Resident Evil 4 still really good. It, it, if I can't recommend it to somebody who has never played it before. Like If you're like a, a, a brand new gamer or a younger gamer who is used to quality of life stuff, like controls that don't feel counterintuitive or story, a story that isn't, total garbage um don't play resident (laughs) evil 4 but if you're like me and remember it fondly and want that nostalgia kick i think nintendo switch portably is the best way to play this game now okay then uh so don't or do play resident evil 4 you heard it from jacob and also don't uh drink 10 of that thing so yeah don't drink 10 of thing yeah but you know if if you're uh, if if you want some resident evil in your life uh resident evil 2 remake uh is straight up incredible and if they remade Resident Evil 4 in that style and fixed all the broken stuff I would buy that game again for like the third time so make that happen Capcom so you're basically saying if they made the the, the thing that you like that is not perfect perfect then people would like it uh, Peter I'm not exaggerating when I say Resident <laughs> Evil 2 remake is one of the best games I've ever played it takes a, 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 a very old game and rebuilds it from the ground up in a way that feels like like how it always should have been. So Capcom, I have bought Resident Evil four three times or so. 
over the years for various platforms, I will rebuy it again if you remake it. So put that money where your mouth is with all your Resident Evil remake talks. As we know it's coming. You know Resident Evil 3 remake's coming next. So do four after that. I'll buy them all, damn it. I'm sure someone from Capcom have, has been listening for the entire hour and a half of this show and is uh, taking notes as you speak, Jacob. Uh, they, they better be. I, I know best. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyways, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, SlashFilm Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, and returns at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Uh, yeah, uh, Peter's not here. Uh, <laughs> am, am, I, am I correct in remembering that – did you record a, uh, a water cooler without me last week? Or is that – I don't remember. I, I believe we did. Didn't we? We did? No, I'm you were no. – wait. Hold on. <laughs> we have to investigate. We don't, we don't remember yeah. what we did anymore. I asked because I need I need to know if I was on last week's water cooler or not because my my, my clock's thrown off. I need to know if I need to, need to do double jokes today or not. From no, you were totally there, Jacob. Yeah. Okay. I remember now. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah. yeah. No book. double jokes. That, that the Gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Lewis A. Safian is now open in front of me to the entertainers. By the way, we should mention that last week you did read from a website, which That's right. af- after the fact, after you read these these horrible jokes, um, we realized was racist and sexist. <laughs> Yes, I, if you scroll down far enough to the horrible joke website I found, there were some user-submitted jokes at the very bottom that went to some dark places, so you should not follow that URL. <laughs> so now I, I feel bad that we even gave it any promotion at all, but uh, I guess we're also giving promotion to Louis A. Safian. Look, Louis A. Safian is many things. He, he may not think highly of women. He may think men are scoundrels. He may think we're all worthless, but you know what? His jokes are mostly clean. I think they're a little sexist. They like don't they have like a tinge of like women or like money grubbing? There's been some of that. Oh yeah, um, but you know what? Um, let's see if there's any sexism on page 278 to the entertainers section. Okay. <clears throat> hey Peter, the curtain rose in your performance at 8:30. The audience rose at 8:40. That was actually pretty good. I, I, I don't I don't get it. So wait, my they show just... was 10 minutes long. I think the implication is that it's so bad that they gave up after 10 minutes, right? The curtain rose on Peter's performance at 8.30. The audience rose at 8.40. My favorite thing is when you repeat these jokes, Jacob. HT, last night's performance proved beyond doubt that you're going to go far. The audience chased you five miles. Oh, my. But that's because they like her. Yeah, what if they're fans? Hard day's night. Yeah, exactly. Well, Ben, he's such a ham... He'd feel at home between two slices of bread. <laughs> That's how I sleep at night. <laughs> Chris, he claims he sings by ear. Unfortunately, that's the way his audience listens. What? How else would they what? listen? <laughs> I I really don't understand that one. Chris yeah, claims yeah. he sings by ear. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the way his audience listens. Oh, okay, I get it. It's a good one. Uh, these, these are actually really good jokes. I like this page. <sighs> do you do you want to send one to Brad, who is not here? He's he's out sick. 
Yeah, Brad is sick. Well, the trouble with Brad... Uh, wait, no, that's not a good one. Wait, the other four ones were good? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, tried to, I, tried, I was trying to read this joke that I realized I didn't get it halfway through reading it. I, I, I need to understand it before I read it. Wait, you understand all the jokes you read? Yes, always. I'm very smart, Peter. <laughs> all right, here we go. Brad's act goes over like a pregnant woman doing a pole vault. Oh, my. <laughs> what an image. <laughs>